0: Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, welcome to Ideas Having Sex. My guest today is professor of philosophy, Mike Humor. Mike is a returning guest to the show and the author of several books and numerous articles, including The Problem of Political Authority, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, which we discussed on episode eight, Justice Before the Law, which we talked about in episode 13, and the book we're discussing today, co-authored with Daniel Lehman, is called is Political Authority an Illusion? Mike, it's great to have you back. Hi, it's great to be back. So this is not a normal book. It's a debate volume. Can you start by saying what a debate volume it actually is? And in particular, how did this one come about? How did this book come to be written?
1: Yeah, well, there's a series. There's a Rutledge series called Little Debates About Big Questions. And the uh, so the editor of that, uh, I guess, is a fan of my work and has invited me to contribute to two of the debates in the series. And they do a bunch of different interesting topics that are controversial in philosophy. And my other one is about skepticism. But yeah. I think that I suggested to him that he should do one about authority. Is so. the one about skepticism,
0: that one's not already out, correct? It's not out. It's forthcoming. But uh, but we finished the, the main text. So what is the actual process like on a practical level of of writing something like this? I So I just had, I just spoke to Jason Brennan, and he did a um, debating democracy debate book. And yeah, and I'm just curious, like relative to in-person debates where there are sometimes like structured, uh, you know, traditional rules about how to engage in a debate. Is there anything similar? Or was there anything similar in your experience writing this book as far as how you guys contribute your pieces? Do you Do you read each other's pieces and then edit them and then read them again and then edit them again so that they're speaking to each other more?
1: So, you know, each of us wrote an opening statement and then, and which is kind of long, they're like 20,000 words. This is, you know, this is analogous to the length limits in regular debates. So so 20,000 words is kind of a lot for most people. It's like, you know, um, length of two long academic papers, right? And so then, and then each of us wrote a reply and I forgot what the word limit is on that. And then each of us wrote a second reply. So I went first. So I think we each wrote our opening statements um, without reading the other person's. And then, you know, and then you write your reply after reading the other person's opening statement. Um, And then, you know, people like sometimes want to revise their previous statements. So you have to make sure to
0: revise in a way that doesn't render obsolete the other person's reply. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, it's I mean, you went first just chronologically in the book. So His at least was edited in a way that like he's making reference to things you argued in the first one, but it it wasn't clear that you were doing the same thing. I'm just always curious about like practically how you guys are put in conversation with each other. Uh, But it reads really nicely. That's good. So can you just can you frame briefly the topic that you're arguing about and why it's an important topic to argue about? Why is it controversial or interesting? And what is it?
1: You know, one of the the first things that should strike you when you think about the nature of government is how the government does a whole bunch of things that nobody else is allowed to do. And in fact, it does a lot of things that would be considered very serious felonies if anyone else were to do them, right? So like, if I decide to tax people, we have a name for that, it's called extortion, right? If I go around like threatening to kidnap people, Unless they pay me a large portion of their income, I'm an extortionist. And if I actually do the kidnapping, then you know I'm a kidnapper. I I would go to jail for twenty years. If I decide that um, you know some other country is posing a threat to my society, and so I decide to go over there and start blowing up buildings and shooting people, I will be called a terrorist. But when the government does this, it is it's just called war, right? And the people who participate are often considered heroes whereas you know you you will not be considered a hero if you participate in terrorist attacks. so okay but on the surface of it they're the same actions they're just you know one of them is done by the state and one of them is done by anyone else so there's an interesting question as to why what how is the state different and you know why do we think that it's okay for the state to do these things okay now the answer to that is we think that the state has authority, right? Which is this special moral status that enables you to, um, you know, d- do what would otherwise be rights violations. It makes it so that the rights of other people don't apply with respect to you, right? Uh, now, uh, you know, nobody thinks that the state can do just anything without limit, <laughs> right? But most people think the state can do lots of things that the rest of us can't do, and so, okay. So the notion of authority, well, that's really just a label on this problem and so the real question is why does the state have authority right and so okay so and you know people have different theories about that but it just happens that none of the theories are very good right and and all the theories that you try to give to explain why the state gets to you know extort extort money and perform terrorist attacks and so on um they're just not
0: very believable when you examine them so you have this puzzle that you start off with, which, you know, to, to start with, you do come to a controversial position, but the the like the puzzle you just laid out and the hypothetical you draw at the beginning of like a vigilante performing these actions and cleaning up crime and locking people up and telling people what they what's healthy and not for them to eat. You know, this this isn't meant to be the argument against political authority. This is just meant to draw out the the question in the first place. Why is it that an ordinary person, even acting in good faith, is considered a criminal and is not morally entitled to do these kinds of things. Whereas when the states do them, even relatively, uh, you know, unsavory states, it's generally considered legitimate. What what is the explanation for that? And yeah. then, you know, you structure your argument uh, in a really nice way where you go through basically the most popular scholarly and popular arguments for why states might have that authority. And as you said, come out mostly saying none of the arguments are, are very good. So can you say something about, well, here, here's my first question about the arguments for political authority. What do you think is the most popular argument for like lay people and the most popular argument for scholars, philosophers in particular, but scholars in general?
1: I mean, you commonly hear about the social contract. I think this might be because that's what people were taught in high school. So anyway, they are taught this in high school, so they think this must be a good theory um yeah there's a contract between you and the state which you have somehow agreed to (laughs) and the contract says the state has to protect you from criminals whatever and, and foreign governments and you have to pay them some money in exchange and also obey their rules and you know you don't have that contract with anyone else and so that's why you don't have to obey anyone else and so on okay and the only problem with this is just like it's obviously factually false it's just bizarre on the face of it that somebody would say this thing that was just so obviously flying in the face of reality you know need i point out there in fact isn't such a contract like nobody has ever written that up and then given it to the citizens to sign nobody can show me where my signature is on that contract so it's a a little bit weird (laughs) anyway okay and then when you say this people um the standard response is to claim that there's a, quote, implicit agreement, right? So an implicit agreement is one that you somehow communicate through your behavior rather than actually saying that you agree. So like, you know, when you go into a restaurant and you order food, you usually don't actually say, and I will pay for this, right? But nevertheless, it's considered implied that you're going to pay for it, right? And, you know, if you don't want to pay for it, Either don't order the food or tell them at the start that you're not going to pay for it.
0: And it's only considered implied because it's an overwhelmingly common cultural norm in a particular context. If you were from a society where business transactions always involved like the money side first and then the service, and you came to the United States without that knowledge and you were like, oh, this must be some kind of charity food place. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I think you probably wouldn't be obligated to pay for it after the fact if you if you genuinely or at least it would be questionable. You know, you would have a genuine case for like, I I thought you were giving me a present that happens all the time. I think in in small cases like there are places where you can go and uh, you will be charged for things like napkins or straws or little extras that are commonly free in like wealthier countries and you yeah, might yeah. be excused as an American for objecting to being charged for such things because you yeah, really yeah. didn't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's that is illustrating the idea of the implicit agreement, right? Like so if you if you were under the impression that it was a free gift, then you didn't agree even implicitly. But so the only problem with this is that it's also factually not true. <laughs> um, you know, like how how did I how did my behavior imply that I agreed to have a government? Right. And it, like the most the most popular answer to that is you implicitly accepted the government just by living where you live and not moving to another place so if you want to not have a government you have to move to some place that doesn't have a government which would be i suppose antarctica because that is the only land mass on earth that doesn't have a government right so okay so by Living in your own house on your own property instead of moving to Antarctica, you're communicating that you agreed to have the government. You know, um, imagine trying this argument with anyone else, right? Yeah, you know, like I, I go, and you know, I just show up in your neighborhood and say, "Hey, you know, you got to give me like a hundred dollars a month. If you don't agree, get out of your house and move to Antarctica." Oh, you're not moving to Antarctica? Okay, you've agreed to pay me money. <laughs> like, so this would not be accepted for anyone other than the state, right? Uh, You know, no one other than the state gets to demand that you have to give up your own property, you know, unless you want to have them just completely control your life.
0: And it's a, this is a really circular argument, because I think most people, without saying it, or sometimes they do say it, just immediately rely on, yeah, well, the government owns, this is America, you know, the American government owns the land, which one is more or less the thing they're trying to prove in the first place. And two, would probably license much more than, than uh, they're realizing it does. I mean, the, the, the number of things and the scope of things you are allowed to do in your own house on your own property includes a lot of things that people would object to the government doing. I mean, you can kick people out of your house very capriciously for no reason at all. And people might say you're an asshole, but you're still allowed to do it. Um, if the U S just like came up to you and said this, this book is ridiculous. Mike humor, get out. That'd be pretty tyrannical.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they, they have to push me into the ocean because, you know, Mexico and Canada won't take me (laughs) because I'm not a citizen. So they just throw me into the ocean and then I drown. but that's not their problem because, you know, I'm in their country. Right. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah. How did the government come to own the, the entire country? You know, like I was under the impression that individual plots of land were owned by particular individuals. How did the government get to own all of it? Well, I don't know. But the way that they got power over it was they seized power with guns. So, you know, you can decide if you think that that's the basis for a legitimate property claim.
0: And usually from, you know, a previous authority that did the same thing, maybe with bows and arrows.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, in this case, they they seized it from the Native Americans by shooting them. And physically pushing them off the land and whatever,
0: <laughs> a social contract falls under broadly these consent-based justifications for political authority that it, that in some way mm-hmm. we consented. The straight social contract and maybe tacit or implicit consent. You think is probably like popular among lay people. Is hypothetical consent more popular among scholars because of its association with John Rawls?
1: Yeah, it seems so. I don't think ordinary people would say this hypothetical consent thing, right? Which is that, okay, okay, we don't actually have a contract, but, you know, in a hypothetical scenario in which we were setting up a society and deciding what its rules should be, and, you know, you were deliberating perfectly rationally and in ideal conditions, you would agree to have a government. And so that's why you have to actually obey them, right? (laughs) And, um, you know, I noticed, like, one of the things about uh, real contracts is that usually you can specify if you don't agree. Like, if you don't want to have a contract, usually you can just say, I don't agree to this. And then the contract won't be imposed on you. So, like, if you go to the restaurant and you go, okay, so I want you to give me the, uh, you know, give me the tofu tacos, uh, but I don't want to pay for it. Okay, I'm not agreeing to pay. Just to be completely clear, all right? But give me the tacos anyway. Okay, and then then they cannot say that you agreed to pay for it. So if they give you the tacos after you say that, then you don't have to pay for it because you didn't agree, all right? But anyway, so you know you should be able to just say like you know send the IRS a letter that says so. Um, I don't agree to have a government. So please send me back all of my money. You know, send back the withholding. <laughs> oh, yeah, the way you phrase
0: this is like explicit descent trumps implicit consent or or tacit yeah. or hypothetical or whatever these kinds of magical forms of secret consent are should be yeah. and in contracts normally would be trumped by your explicitly saying, No, I don't. I, I get why you think I, I said yes to this, but let me just tell you I didn't.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, normally you can't say that somebody implicitly agreed if they explicitly said they didn't.
0: The hypothetical
1: consent is a little bit weird because like, you know, again, the hypothetical consent, people don't accept the possibility of your explicitly actually disagreeing, right? Now, there are some cases in which hypothetical consent makes sense. So let's say you're, uh, you're a surgeon in the emergency room of a hospital and like this accident victim has come in who needs surgery, but um, he's unconscious okay so what do you do and normally performing surgery on somebody requires their consent so and you can't get it because he's unconscious so what do you do and so well then you perform the surgery anyway and the reason is that it's reasonable to assume that the person would consent right so you know like given given the situation right and let's say it's life-saving surgery they would probably want it so you go ahead anyway okay but one thing that you can't do is you can't take a patient who is conscious and actually says that they don't want the surgery and then argue that they would consent to it like you know in some other circumstance like what if
0: an uh, idealized version of the patient would have consented though yeah 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 exactly right like that's that's an allegate to the political philosophy thing right what if the patient if they didn't know anything about their own circumstances would have consented and they were behind a veil mm-hmm. of ignorance
1: yeah that's like the rawlsian argument right So, you know, if you're in ideal conditions, you would agree to have a government. Now, there are some people who, based upon their actual philosophical beliefs, you know, like me, would not consent. (laughs) Okay. And so, like, the only thing for the Rawlsian to say is, yeah, but, you know, you're being irrational. And if you were fully rational, you would consent. And this is analogous to the surgeon who has the patient who doesn't want the surgery saying, yeah, but, you know, you're being irrational. If you were rational, you would consent. Well, no. No. I mean, that doesn't override your actual descent because, you know, people have rights, they have rights over their own body.
0: Yeah. And something that always, this is, this is kind of a, a loose counter argument, but something that always bugged me about the Rawlsian argument and hypothetical consent is that it seems like it depends on a really, really controversial and contestable idea of what, idealized people would actually do. And just yeah. the fact that you can find, I'm, you know, maybe they're right, but you can find so many people, smart people, thinking clearly who would disagree that that's what an idealized person behind a veil of ignorance would have agreed to. I mean, you know, the, the idea is that maybe, maybe people don't really agree to having a government in real life, but if they were in ideal circumstances where they weren't biased by the particularities of their life and interests... And they were deciding, you know, together as a group and deliberating calmly and rationally about what kind of society they would live in. These are the kind of rules they would come up with. It's also yeah. very convenient that, you know, they come up with the kind of rules that you know people like John Rawls probably already wanted. They come up with good rules that, like, center-left academic types or I mean, maybe center-left is not accurate, but you know, they they come up with like political liberalism, <laughs> like Western-style political liberalism.
1: Yeah, you know, like, the idea that everyone would agree, you know, like, on, in ideal conditions of deliberation, everyone would agree on the same political views, It's just, like, completely out of touch with reality. <laughs>
0: and political okay. views that are very rare throughout history.
1: Yeah, yeah. And around the world. And, you know, so, I mean, you might say, oh, well, you know, actual people are just irrational, okay, <laughs> or unreasonable or whatever. You know, like, there's no non-question begging evidence of that, right? there are plenty of people who disagree with like John Rawls's political views who don't appear to be irrational, like, you know, by sort of like by any normal standard, that doesn't totally beg the question, right? Unless you just say like, oh, by irrational, I mean, like disagreeing with me, right? Or disagreeing with these arguments that I gave, right? (laughs) And so then like, there's no independent evidence that it's due to their personal bias or something like that, right? there are these utilitarians and who Rawls is opposing, right? And it's like, well, there's nothing particularly biased, right? Like the utilitarians are, if anything, the most impartial, like their philosophy is the most impartial of any moral philosophy. So like, it's hard to say, oh, you're just being biased. Like, you know, it's hard to say that they're being irrational unless you're just saying, well, I have objections to their view, right? And then it's just like... Okay. You know, they would also say that you're irrational. So if you're not a utilitarian, whatever. So then, you know, anyway, okay, this whole thing about like trying to reason about what a rational person would choose is totally useless because you have to first figure out the objective truth. And then if you can do that, then you don't need this argument about what rational people would say.
0: Are you aware of any comparative empirical work that tries to put people in something vaguely analogous to a veil of ignorance and see what kinds of rules they come up with. I mean, you can't have people actually deciding on political rules, but maybe even just like people do do this. I mean, this is what like councils of people at, at, you know, um, in sports associations do all the time is try to tweak and come up with different kinds of rules for how some sporting organization is going to run. That's impartial to the different teams and the different members or, uh, you know, on a different level people who are playing certain kinds of video games where they don't necessarily know exactly what their character is going to look like in advance. I don't know if there's if there's yeah. it's this this seems like it'd be interesting to see like what do actual what kinds of rules do actual people tend to converge on and do they have anything in common? And and my guess is they probably don't look very much like this. I, I think various forms of egalitarianism and meritocracy probably seem like things that ordinary people converge on a lot whether they're right or not, I don't know but yeah um, Rawls's principles no. don't strike me as plausible.
1: yeah no um you yeah, know so like I don't I don't know if the audience knows but so okay, so Rawls's principles include that we should try to have the most extensive personal liberty possible compatible with everyone having the same liberty and then also, importantly in the more controversial part is the government should try to distribute wealth in the way that maximizes the benefit of the worst off group of people like the poorest people okay so like you know the the interests of rich people don't count at all you know like if in comparison to poor people right the interest of yeah. of average people don't count at all yeah yeah anyone anyway, in fact even poor people who aren't the bottom <laughs> don't count at all Compared to the poorest people, right?
0: Does he have a reason for for saying the poorest group rather than the poorest person? uh, Yeah, it's totally
1: dumb, right? It's like, well, okay, in the original position, we're going to imagine that we have um, people who are representatives of social groups or something. And so, you know, because... Oh, I don't know, maybe because it's unwieldy to have like millions of people deliberating or something. But anyway, it's lame, right? Like the argument, the rest of the argument, you know, would seem to support that it's the worst off single individual. And anyway, like there's, anyway, there's like no principled way of defining what a group is, right? So is the poorest two people in the country a group, right? Like all I know about a group just conceptually is that it has to have at least two people. So why not the poorest, the worst off, pair of people but you know presumably you're not supposed to think that you're supposed to think that it's some larger group but then there's no principled way of deciding how big it's supposed to be but anyway but okay so you know that like that whole thing about how you should distribute wealth is very um very dubious okay but you might say okay fine like you know people wouldn't all agree on how to distribute wealth but at least everyone would agree to have some government, you know, that's all, that's all, that's all we need. Anyway, we just need an agreement to have some government or other, right? Okay, now, and it's not really clear that that should be considered enough, because there's nothing that you can do with that. You know, if you're there with a group of people, and you say, okay, so let's have a government. And even if everyone agrees on that, that's not enough information for you to actually set it up. You need to agree on at least something about how it would be structured. And as soon as you try to give any, you know, any practical details, that will not be agreement anymore. Not to mention that there are some people called anarchists who actually wouldn't even agree with the basic idea of having some government, right? And And, you know, on a contract theory, you need universal agreement. Okay, and then like, well, the Rawlsians or the hypothetical consent people would have to say, "Oh, yeah, so you know, you anarchist people are just being irrational. So if you were fully rational, or whatever, if you were, if we removed your biases, then you would agree to have a government." Okay, but the thing is, like, there's no basis for thinking that other than just like, "Oh, well, I don't agree with your arguments." So what they'd have to do is they would first have to independently prove that anarchism is wrong. And then they could argue that the anarchists are being unreasonable, and then they could try to justify government by using the hypothetical consent. But this strategy of argumentation requires you to first prove that you need a government in order to defend the government, right? So it's, you know, a circular reasoning problem.
0: Well, and you can't prove that anarchists are being unreasonable just by proving that anarchism is false. I mean, you probably need to prove that it's like obviously and dramatically false or something. Which I'm sure people listening right now are thinking, some are thinking, well, you, obviously it is obviously stupid and anarchists are crazy bomb yeah. throwers. You're not a terrorist. <laughs> Can I confirm that? You're not a, <laughs> I mean, you, you're, you don't engage in propaganda of the deed? No, I'm not. I'm not a terrorist
1: like the, like the way the US government is <laughs> incidentally. <Okay>. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> I was worried for a second. The majority of people's impression of anarchism is that it's a completely stupid, you know, completely irrational idea. And the reason for this impression is that they have absolutely no knowledge of it. They have never read anything by any anarchist and have haven't the slightest idea of what any of it says, right? And so that's and so you know, like, their imp- most people's impression of the anarchist philosophy is um, just based upon the word. Like, I've heard the word. I heard that there are anarchists, and so now, just based on that, I'm going to make up what their view is.
0: Yeah, I I think the initial assumption is either pie-in-the-sky utopian or awful terrorist. Yeah. Those are the two options.
1: Yeah, or possibly
0: both. (laughs) Okay, so we've got hypothetical consent. Another popular answer to what gives government's authority is the fact that the people support it. And doesn't popular support or democratic support or some kind of proper democratic procedure grant legitimacy to a government
1: yeah good question so (laughs) i think the way this comes up is you know you start by thinking oh yeah um the government governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed i read that in the declaration of independence okay so you're like okay so everyone has to consent and then you realize that oh it's impossible to get everyone's consent right and then you're like okay well maybe you know we could just like imagine a hypothetical scenario in which everyone gets sense then you realize that even in idealized conditions, like people are still going to disagree as far as we can tell. And so then finally you go, all right, well, maybe we just need the consent of a majority of people because at least that's kind of feasible. So like, at least it's true that a majority of people would consent to have the government, right? Now, you know, incidentally, just as a factual matter, like claiming that everything the government does is supported by the majority of people is very dubious. Uh, Keep in mind that, you know, I mean, first of all, they don't even vote for the policies, they vote for people, and the people do not necessarily do what, I mean, the politicians do not necessarily do what their constituents want. Sometimes unpopular policies get passed. Also worth noting that, the you know, like maybe only half people actually vote. So it's only a majority of the people who vote, which is an absolute minority of the society. Then you note also that, well, people didn't have that many options on the ballot, right? Normally, when you're voting, you know, you're voting for politicians, and there's only two of them. And it's extremely common for people to say that they don't want either of those people. But the option of having neither of those people is not on the ballot. So they can't vote for that. (laughs) Right. So, you know, there are there are a bunch of problems with saying that because it's a democracy, that means that the people have authorized everything the government is doing,
0: right? Herbert Spencer has some famous phrase about this. And How whether if you vote yes for something, you're expressing your consent for it. If you vote no for it, you're participating in the procedure and at least consenting to the outcome. And if you don't vote at all, you don't have any uh, cause for complaint because you didn't participate. So you express your consent no matter what you do. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've heard that, right? Like, oh, you have to vote because if you don't vote, you have no right to complain. But then if you do vote, people say, oh, you know, by participating in the process, you're implicitly consenting so no matter no matter what you know, okay suppose we have a particular law that the majority of people have agreed to and then does that does that make it just well i don't know like what if there's a group of 5 people and 3 of them want to beat up the other two so the majority of people want those two to be beaten up because you know 3 is more than 2 <laughs> they're the majority so now do they have the right to beat up the other two people no not not remotely right the fact that their majority doesn't at all support that they have the right to do that right okay now you know you might think oh is this really fair like not not such a fair analogy is the government really just like beating up the minority well they're not exactly doing that but you know some of the things the government does are kind of like that you know like well the majority of people want to take a bunch of money away from a minority of people and, you know, like the a lot of the stuff that goes on with government policy has to do with um, stealing from some people to give to others or just like making restrictions on some people in order to provide uh, relatively small economic benefits for some influential interest group. Like that's a that's a good amount of what what happens in the government. So, you know, it's I mean,
0: it's a little bit like having this group of people where some of them want to just like take the other people's money. And Lehman doesn't exactly rely on this particular version of, of democratic justification for political authority, but he does seem to bite the bullet that, you know, it's a relatively high bar for, like like you're saying, the, the real, real world governments don't actually uh, approach this kind of genuine popular support for what states do, which would mean that if the democratic explanation is correct, it still doesn't get you as far as justifying very much political authority it justifies a little bit and it only justifies probably a small number of countries throughout the world and throughout history and it seems like layman bites that bullet Says, yeah most most states probably don't have political authority
1: yeah no if you have this democratic theory of authority most governments have not had authority which is you know you should think about that that's fairly striking right so like um because most governments throughout history have been undemocratic right and today only around half of the world is democratic so in half of the world the government has no authority they're just a bunch of um criminals right they're just like the criminal gang with the most power so that is fairly striking but that is I think that's against the views of most people even in those countries so even if they're against the government they probably don't think that that the taxation there is equivalent to theft or whatever even if they think They would rather have a democratic government or they would rather have a different leader they probably still don't think that the leader has no right to tax them or something okay so like but you know the democratic theory of authority implies that okay but also like if you're revising common sense beliefs to that extent it's not so implausible that well maybe actually all of the governments lack authority um and you know like it just just conveniently that you happen to get to say that your own society, you know, the status quo is fine in your own society, right? You only have radically revisionary views about other societies that you don't live in, so you don't have to change anything, you know?
0: So Layman's view uh, re- relies on something I think he calls equal ultimate accountability, as opposed to, like, uh, equal participation or or say in the government. Like, he's, he's not yeah. super up on... The exact like this particular democratic argument. Can you explain to your understanding like his concept of accountability as a justification?
1: Yeah. So I keep saying that the, you know it's really important that the government is accountable to the people, and then I kept trying to say, well, but they're not. In actual fact, they're not accountable, and then, and so like I got this, I got the sense that um, it seemed to me like he was changing what it meant, but I think his take was that, you know, humor is just like totally not understanding. (laughs) Anyway, so, but, you know, my initial take on saying the government is accountable is that should mean that there's something that I can actually do to hold the government accountable. Like something that I personally can practically do if the government fails in its job. Like, okay, so like they're supposed to protect people from crime Um, They're supposed to peacefully resolve disputes like through the court system, and they're supposed to protect us from from hostile foreign governments. And maybe there's a bunch of other stuff that they have to do also. But at least those things, you know, like the police courts and uh, national defense, at least those are generally agreed upon to be um, essential functions of the government. Okay. And so if they're accountable to me, that should mean that if they fail in those jobs, I can do something about it. Right. And then, you know, I just point out, like, well, no, there's nothing that you can do about it. Okay. And that has happened many times. The government has failed many times. Like, there are many times when somebody has been subject to crime that the government didn't stop. And furthermore, many times in which they could have easily stopped it and they didn't. You know, like you call the police and tell them that somebody's breaking into your home and then they don't show up. Where like they clearly got your call, they clearly knew, and they didn't do anything about it. So that has happened many times. Um, And then there's absolutely nothing you can do about it, right? So you can try suing the government, which has happened, and then the government courts will dismiss your lawsuit summarily, right? Meaning that they will not allow a jury to hear it. They will just immediately dismiss it and not allow you to have a trial on that lawsuit, (laughs) on the grounds that, according to you know official U.S. legal doctrine. (laughs) Uh, The government has no obligation to provide public services to any particular individual. They have no duty to do anything for you. Okay. So, like, so, you know, you can't sue them. Uh, You can't prosecute them, you know, and like, okay, so what could you do? Like, oh, um, you know, you try to get the police who failed fired. How do you do that? Like, you call up the mayor and say, hey, could you fire these police officers, right? Well, you probably won't even be able to contact the mayor, So, like, you could send a letter, so maybe it will go to someone on his staff, okay? And then what will happen? They're not going to fire them. They're not going to do anything, right? And so then you're like, okay, well, but you can, maybe you can get the mayor voted out of office. Okay, so, like, what you got to do is, like, try to raise millions of dollars to campaign against him, right? In order to convince, because you got to convince, like, many thousands of people to change their votes in order to get him out of office, right? And this is basically just infeasible. There's basically just nothing that you can do. So,
0: And is this even really related to democracy? I mean, isn't this view compatible with an obviously undemocratic country that maybe had a, a very well-functioning set of accountability principles and like complaint forms that citizens could fill out in like Saudi Arabia to say, you know, ex-official... Did this and that thing, and was corrupt, and they reliably get fired or penalized or something like that? Would that, under those circumstances, would that count as authority under this view?
1: I think Layman would say no. It has to be democratic. <laughs> Why is that not sufficient? I don't know. I, th- I think I would. I think he would say no. You know, it has to be accountable and democratic. Like there's a you know two part condition for having authority. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I kept wondering what what you would do in your vigilante hypothetical to add some some accountability to that example. I was picturing this vigilante going around locking people up and doing stuff, and then somehow pre-committing to being accountable. Like maybe he maybe he uh, hires an irreversible contract, a mafia organization, <laughs> and he says, "Yeah, go ahead and complain to them. They will. They've got this fair procedure. You can try to sue me, and they'll yeah. break my legs if I if I don't do the kinds of things I'm saying yeah. I'm going to do." or yeah. something like that
1: well yeah i mean that would make that would make the vigilante way way more accountable than the u.s government is <laughs> or or you know state or local governments are right because in the case of the government if you don't like what they're doing you can only complain to them and then it's completely up to them whether they want to do anything about it so okay so anyway and like you know Oh, um, what if you don't like the way a judge is behaving? like, oh, you could try to sue the judge and then it'll be evaluated by another judge. like you, when you try to sue the government, it gets evaluated in the government courts, right? So like a better analogy would be, yeah, I'm uh, I'm going around the neighborhood and then I say, hey, okay, if you don't like the job that I'm doing here, you, you can complain to my brother and then he'll decide he'll look at it. So you know, further in the debate, um I think as far as far as I now understand it that, you know, layman would say, oh, no, in order for the government to be accountable, it doesn't have to be the case that you as an individual can do anything whatsoever about their failure to do their job. <laughs> Rather, the government is accountable to um, the populace as a whole, meaning like if That's the population the as a whole- That's
0: about the you have about the court decisions about the state's responsibility to, right? Like, that's their position. They've got a responsibility to the population as a whole to keep public order, but not to any individual.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, to which my response was, well, in that case, no individual has an obligation to obey the government. Only society as a whole has an obligation. And so, since I'm not society as a whole, I don't have to obey the government, right? Like, that's how it should work in traditional contract doctrine, right? Because, you know the uh obligation under a contract is mutual like if a is obligated to b then b is obligated to a but you know so if they're saying the government isn't obligated to the individuals and the individuals aren't obligated to them but so okay uh yeah but so i think layman's view would be oh yeah well the government isn't accountable to you specifically it's not accountable to any individual but it's accountable to like the group as a whole because the whole group like the the group of voters could decide to vote out these government officials right okay now you know I I would point out that uh so most government officials are not elected so cannot be voted out and most laws are made by unelected officials right uh namely most laws are made by bureaucrats in regulatory agencies who are not elected so you can't vote them out even if they're doing a bad job even if you somehow get like millions of people to agree with you. You still can't vote them out. And what you could do is you could try to vote for different politicians in the hopes that one of the politicians will fire the bureaucrats. Right. But this is just like a really tenuous kind of accountability.
0: Something that just occurred to me is it used to be really There's a particular argument, I think for political authority that used to be more common and I don't think it's used at all anymore. And this is, trying to draw some kind of an analogy between parental authority and state authority. And I'm surprised it's not common. I mean, I see why it is, because it's so obviously not democratic. But on the other hand, it is a version of authority that most people have real experience of in real life and believe in. Like political authority, you say nobody really believes that states have unlimited political authority to do anything they want. But they have pretty wide discretion, even to make mistakes occasionally, And that gives you something like content independence, like the authority they have is not only to do things that are morally righteous and just, it's broader than that. And a lot of people believe that about parents too. Like there are limits to what you can do as a parent, but most people believe that even as a parent, you probably have the right to some wiggle room in making questionable decisions in your parenting just because you're a parent. Why why do you think like arguments uh, of this sort? have completely fallen out of favor.
1: Yeah so I mean that that's a good point that you know we should emphasize like what's puzzling about authority what the especially puzzling part is uh it's considered to entitle the state to make incorrect laws right they made a law that is objectively not beneficial but it's still generally thought that they get to enforce it and like and so i guess that's you know like maybe also maybe that's true for parents
0: i don't find that completely obvious but well, at least most people think that it is i mean if you yeah. see I think if you saw a parent being mean to their kid and doing something you thought was uh, objectionable, you might say something, but you might also think like, well, you know, that's his mom. Like, it's not my kid. And that's that's a very normal reaction to bad parenting. Once you get to like, you know, serious abuse, then people might intervene and and not think that. But if you think that a parent is making a stupid decision by sending their kid to school with like hot Cheetos for lunch every day, you're probably just going (laughs) to butt out and think it's their right as a parent. Uh, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, but and I mean, giving the thing is giving somebody
1: hot Cheetos doesn't require authority. <laughs> so, but it like, requires I can, authority. I can give anyone oh, yeah. Cheetos anytime. <laughs> but anyway, okay. But yeah, they're So the parents are making some minor error. You might think, okay, whatever, leave them alone. And so you might think similarly with the government. Like maybe if they are making minor errors, we should still go along with it. Okay. But by the way, like I should say, sometimes they make pretty major errors. I think the drug laws are unjust. And so, you know, that means that there's something like half a million people unjustly imprisoned, right? Because that's how many people are in prison under drug violations. Okay, that's not a minor thing. I mean, prison is probably about the worst place that anyone in our society lives, right? It's, it's very dangerous, and unpleasant, and, you know, kind of like ruins the person's life, right? So anyway, like, it's a pretty big thing. So you need like a really strong justification for why it's okay for the government to do this. In other words, like people are attributing way more authority to the government to do like way worse things than they do to parents. And there's a lot less justification, you know, because the reason why parents tell their children what to do is that children don't know anything. And, and, you know, they're children. But and it's parents not the case. are
0: uniquely in a position that i you it's easier to make a case that parents are uniquely the person who know who both has the best knowledge and the best incentive to want th- what's good for their children that's yeah, doesn't yeah. seem obviously the case with s- states
1: it's, it seems obviously not the case with states right like uh, yeah first of all politicians are not superior to the rest of us like they're they're not like, morally better or smarter are much more knowledgeable, right? They might be less moral than the average person.
0: And they don't have an inborn care for our well being the way parents plausibly yeah. do.
1: Yeah. Right. You know, like evolution designed parents to care for their children, but it didn't design politicians to care for citizens, right? The politicians are out for their own good. Not really attacking them for that. They're just, that's just how normal people are. Normal people care about themselves and their family. They, they don't care that much about total strangers. So, OK, but yeah, so there's just not that good of a reason for thinking that the politician should get to rule over everyone else.
0: So how do you answer somebody that might agree with you that political authority is an illusion that uh, states do not actually have this special property, this moral entitlement to do things that the rest of us don't have? But they hold that view simply because they are an ethical nihilist or a non-cognitivist or someone who believes that all ethical claims are meaningless. Um, you know, what's the upshot of that? And what's your response to that kind of agreement with you? Semi-agreement.
1: Yeah, I get. I, I guess that's an agreement. Like, yeah, yeah, maybe the state has no authority because nobody has any moral properties, I guess. Um I guess my response is that's insane. Well, so like, I mean, I think that if you're having a political discussion with someone, like, they really should not introduce general skepticism about all value claims. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, if you're having a discussion of physics... Um, one physicist should not introduce external world skepticism and say, Oh, you have to prove that there's an external world at all. Right. <laughs> like, how, how do we know we're not all dreaming? You know, like the one guy said, Hey, we got this evidence from the Hubble Space Telescope, whatever. Well, how do you know you're not dreaming? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> okay. Anyway, I guess my other response would be, you know, read my earlier book, Ethical Intuitionism.
0: It's not that it's not a question worth asking, but if you're already engaging in, a, a, you know, discussions of moral philosophy, you know, presumably you have to have some some background assumptions in common before you do that. And one of them is uh, <laughs> that ethical nihilism is false. Yeah. But, you know, like somebody should do something.
1: <laughs> some somebody should do wrong. something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, okay. at least sometimes there's something that someone should do. Uh, What about this objection, Um, an argument from something like from the precautionary principle uh, states and their presumed authority, the presumed authority that they have are such a ubiquitous feature of social life now and throughout much of history that maybe it's best to not rock the boat too much and just act as if political authority is real? I mean, notice that like, you know, 200 years ago, you could have said,
1: monarchy and dictatorship are so widespread let's not mess with this stupid democracy thing right it's like you know they like briefly tried that in athens it wasn't even like much of a democracy but anyway it didn't work out that well democracy is too risky you know let's just stick with the dictatorship you know there's something to be said for being cautious you know i would suggest um shrinking the government gradually we could be cautious that way. But I don't think that we should just like give up on improving things.
0: As I read your argument, you know, you look at these different arguments for what could justify political authority. And probably the argument that you come closest to endorsing is some kind of attenuated consequentialist argument where if the consequences for not having a state were so dramatic, so dramatically bad or so dramatically worse than having a state then it might justify states doing things to prevent that outcome. But that doesn't give you anything like content independence. It gives you it gives you like a classical liberal, like limited government authorization for for some responsible agency to do those minimal things that are required to maintain social order such that we're, you know, not dramatically worse off than we are with a state.
1: Yeah. So you know like an analogy that I have in another book is Uh, We're on a lifeboat, and the lifeboat needs to be bailed out; otherwise, it will sink. And for some reason, the other passengers are not voluntarily bailing out the boat. So, you know, like I take out my gun and I order them to bail out the boat, (laughs) and so they bail out the boat, and so then we're all saved. And so, although it's regrettable that I had to, I had to resort to threats of force, you know, maybe it was justified. Okay, but and then this is important: that I was only justified in doing the minimal thing necessary to save the lifeboat. So like now that I have my gun out, that doesn't mean that I can now go around like taking other people's money and like, you know, telling them, hey, you know, you can't eat those potato chips because they're bad for you or whatever. And just like trying to exert general control over them, which is like what the government does, right?
0: And what's more, so you're one, you're not justified in using this force just to do anything, just because you're justified in pointing a gun at someone and say, you better bail this water, doesn't mean you're also justified in doing these other unrelated things that aren't related to saving everyone's life on the boat and telling people to stop eating hot Cheetos and to stop smoking <laughs> pot and to start worshiping Poseidon. You can't do those things. But it's also the case that you can't, just because the gun was successful at achieving this goal, that alone is also not enough to justify it. If you had been able to to give a 30-second speech and guilt the passengers into rowing, I think you would have been obligated to do that instead, which is also, I think, a realistic example. Like, you know, violence isn't the only answer. Often you can get a similar result with a less restrictive, less violent uh, means. So you have to have, uh, you know, this good goal, this particularly important goal in mind, but there also can't be like a less invasive way of achieving the same thing.
1: Yeah. So like, in the case of government, you know, we should try to explore less coercive methods, right? So, like maybe instead of just like demanding um a third of everybody's income, they could offer services in exchange for money. So, they could offer protection for money. You know, like you have to subscribe to the police, otherwise they won't protect you and they won't do anything if a crime is committed against you. So, the government could do that. They have not tried that, but basically the reason they haven't tried that is well, They don't give a damn whether you agree or not. They just want the money. Okay. And also, by the way, like, so if they were funding their services that way, that would constrain them. That would make it so that they have to make sure that their services are actually worth the amount of money that they're charging. Can't have that. They don't want to do that.
0: They would just want to take as much money as they want. Do you suspect that some people read your argument and agree with your conclusion, but just believe that political authority is a noble lie that must be continued? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we have to trick the people into thinking that they're obligated to obey the state. So, what do you think? Are you've already talked about some? What do you think are some of the practical implications, practical and political implications, if political authority is in fact an illusion?
1: The first thing is, uh, once you realize this, you're supposed to become a libertarian. Okay, and why is that? Because basically, you know, like a minimal state, at least a minimal state libertarian, right? Because basically, the things that the government is doing that would be wrong for anyone else to do are exactly the things that libertarians want the government to stop doing, okay? And the things that the libertarians want the government to keep doing are the things that it would be okay for anyone other than the government to do, right? Or so so I assume, or so libertarians think, right? Like, okay, the government is trying to stop people from committing murder, which is a good thing for anyone to do.
0: So like, if you're aware of a murderer, you can use force to stop him from committing the crimes. Do you have to become, I mean, I'm happy to tell people that they have to become a libertarian, but doesn't that depend on your judgments about the, the practical consequences of not having a state? Like I'm imagining, you know, take your, your consequentialist argument for a minimal state, which I, I think you don't totally endorse, but it's like plausible. Um, if it turns out that it is the case that a state's required to prevent this horrible outcome. Well, you, you have to have some kind of judgment about that being a horrible enough outcome to warrant yeah. a state, couldn't you make a similar judgment about like some form of egalitarianism, and then that like say only a state is ca- as a capable organ for massive redistribution and affecting economic egalitarianism? Without a state, we have this horrific situation where egalitarianism doesn't obtain. So <laughs> at least judged justified in being nice. like a minimal <laughs> a minimal state leftist or something, where the state is there creating basic social order and massive redistribution or something like that? Or d- does some kind of argument like that sound plausible to you? Uh, no.
1: I mean, first, you know, what's the horrible outcome that people will be unequal? You know, this thing that has been true in literally every society throughout human history, that's the horrible
0: outcome. Or horrible even... relative to it not being the case. I don't know. This is yeah. this is not my position, obviously, but uh, it seems so, like it could be someone's position or a lot of people's position. I mean, you know, I have a couple of articles that show that equality has no intrinsic value, which are which are worth looking at. Um, and as a as a just social scientific matter too, there's a, a book that I've been meaning to read that I the basic thesis is that the only things that seem to actually affect significant material equality are uh war, famine, revolution, and like state collapse. So that's not a good look for using states. For redistribution to achieve equality, but it just doesn't actually ever get you very Um, much equality.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you looked at the uh, the Marxist communist societies of the 20th century, um, they had less inequality than the United States, but they were nowhere near to complete equality, right? And that was partly because, well, that's just totally infeasible like if you try to impose complete equality your society completely falls apart even more than the marxist societies did right they already were doing pretty badly but they would have just like completely you know people would have been dying in the streets if they tried to impose complete equality and why because like some jobs are actually more important and more difficult and less desirable and whatever than others and so like people need to be paid more to do them and like. If you don't get paid more for being productive, then you're going to take the least productive job that you can, right? Or I think like a substantial number of people will do that. But okay, so somebody makes the argument that inequality is so bad that we have to use force to try to stop it. I'm like, well, okay, so, you know, think about this just in, you know, in a real life example, like, okay, I see somebody in my neighborhood who has more money than somebody else. So I go to his house and I just like rob him. And then I give it to somebody else who had less money. Like, is that, is that cool? I don't think that's cool. Like, I I don't think, and I, I don't think it's like just libertarians who would say that you can't do that. I think almost every normal person would say you can't do that. And so like, it doesn't seem like the inequality is so bad that it justifies violating people's rights.
0: Okay, so what are the other what are the other uh, upshots of political authority being an illusion? You have to become a libertarian. Sorry, audience, if you're not already, yeah. you are now you libertarian. all libertarians. Uh, I mean, I did
1: discuss jury nullification. I I think it came up briefly in this debate volume. So, jury nullification is a practice where a jury votes to acquit a defendant simply because they think that punishing the defendant would be unjust in in disregard of the person's factual guilt, right? Or they disregard whether the person actually violated the law, and they vote to acquit because they think, regardless of whether you violated the law, it would be unjust to punish you. Okay, and the most common reason for this is that the law itself is unjust. Like, in the United States, drug trials often result in a hung jury, and uh, the jury doesn't have to give any account of why they gave the verdict they did, so we don't know. But it may well be that there are frequently hung juries because of opposition to the nation's drug laws. Right. Uh, this used to happen during the slavery era. Um, trials under the fugitive slave laws would often result in hung juries or acquittals because juries in the North were against those laws, right? These were laws that required people to help um, return escaped slaves to the South, right? So a lot of people thought that was immoral and they were not going to help. And, you know, people would help the slaves evade their former masters, right? And then juries would refuse to convict people for doing that. Okay, so, you know, I think one implication of the lack of authority is, well, there's there's no reason to help enforce laws that you know are unjust. And so if you're on a jury and the law that the person is being tried for violating is unjust, you should just vote to acquit no matter what, regardless of what the evidence is.
0: And that if you can get away with breaking laws for less noble reasons that you're not worried about getting caught for, you shouldn't feel particularly guilty about it as long as they're unjust. I mean, you're you made you, you're at pains to say this in no way licenses people to do things that they have other independent moral reasons to not do. You should follow murder laws and theft laws and vandalism laws and all these kinds of things because there are independent moral reasons to not murder and steal and assault people. But there are not independent moral reasons to, you know, seek to lock people up for smoking marijuana. Uh, increasingly, not a relevant example, thankfully, or to pay a particular amount on your income taxes or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, like I say, there's like half a million people in prison under drug charges, uh, even though they've legalized marijuana in many places, not in all places, and it's still illegal under federal law. So, but so yeah, you know, like if you if you want to get high, but it's illegal. Well it doesn't matter that's illegal, right? Now you should take into account you should be prudent, you should take into account the risks of getting caught and being punished by the state. But you know, if you're pretty sure you're not going to get caught and you're also pretty sure you're not harming other people, then yeah, you know, there's, there's no reason not to So
0: po- political authority, is there an analog? for the need to uh, give an account of political authority with the need to give an account of the authority to enforce property rights. This is something I think left-wing critics often, often bring, like a shift that they often make, like it requires violence to enforce property rights. So my question is, is that analogy justified? And do you or layman have any particular account of the justification for property rights or the moral authority to enforce them? We didn't discuss this in this book. I have a blog post that's about property rights, but um,
1: okay. But so, I mean, the issue of property rights isn't, I don't think it's like the issue of authority, because one of the main things that's puzzling about the idea of political authority is the inequality between the state and everyone else. Like authority places the state above everyone else. And the concept of property does not do that. Everyone is allowed to own property. Like, you know, like everyone then has a special position with regard to their own property. But there's no double
0: standard to explain in in this case.
1: Yeah, right? Like, I mean, you might say, oh, there's a double standard. Like, I get to use this car and other people don't get to use this car, right? But, But it's not like the idea is setting me above everyone else because, like, I don't get to take their stuff, right? And like... Okay. And they can
0: acquire stuff in the same way that I can. So there might be an um, interesting question about how property rights are justified, but it doesn't create the same puzzle as long as there's some reasonably coherent set of property rules that apply equally to everyone. Yeah. And then, you
1: know, so like, okay, so it's still interesting. Like why, why do we have property? And, and you know, that's an interesting question because having property rights means um, you get to exclude other people from using a valuable resource. You own a car, that means, you know, the car is like a valuable resource and your ownership means that you get to stop other people from making use of it, which on the face of it seems bad. I think there's a valuable resource. People are going to get some value out of using it and you can just like not let them do it. And if they try to do it, you can use force to repel them from from gaining value from something that's useful. So on the face of it, that sounds bad. Okay, but basically, like when people complain about this, um, I want to say, okay, what's the alternative view? What is the alternative view of society in which we wouldn't have any property? And as far as I know, there isn't one that anybody actually advocates. You can think of alternative arrangements, alternatives to property rights, but they're all things that are obviously terrible. Okay, or so- Or that are
0: just minor tweaks on, I mean, there's a lot of variability, I think, within what what counts as private property rights or what the particular boundaries are, how you establish them or how abandonment is treated and transfer and things like that. But things that radically depart from that.
1: You know, like I'm not saying we have to like that the exact set of property rights we have is inevitable, but just that the whole general question of why there's property rights at all, like that's the starting question, right? And you you know, you try to imagine a society that doesn't have them. So there hasn't been one. (laughs) And there probably never will be one. Uh, Sometimes people say, oh, but like socialist societies don't have private property. No, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like if you go to a socialist society, can you just grab somebody's shirt off their back and say, you don't own this, so I'm just going to take it. No, you can't, right? People own stuff and you can't like interfere with their stuff. What happens in the socialist society is merely that the government owns all businesses. So you're not allowed to start your own business, right? (laughs) Um, okay. But by the way, that was, that was terrible. That was a terrible arrangement. Didn't work out so well. You know, it didn't kill everyone. It's like, it is a possible social arrangement, but like it does have property and it wasn't as good as our version. So.
0: Bart Wilson's book, The Property Species, I really liked. I, I had him on the show a while back and, you know, he tries to give a, an account of property rights that's somewhat anthropological and he pinpoints like an important feature of human development in, in, not, in the ability to understand the concept of yours. Most animals have some variant of the concept of mine, but having a coherent concept of yours is pretty uniquely human and enabled a lot of social collaboration and cooperation that was more or less impossible before. Is that is that uniquely human? I mean, um, don't animals respect other animals' territory? So he's got a he's got a a whole discussion about that and how uh uh what what the distinctions he's drawing is between territoriality and a property concept and I'm not going to yeah. do it justice but uh but it's a really good book okay. the property species mates and uh territory are both things that other animals tend to be afraid of getting immediately punished for violating but having I don't know broader social norms around around respecting the concept of yours
1: I mean I might say like one key thing about having property is that
0: you get to sell it. And I assume other animals don't sell <laughs> anything. No, they almost anything. never exchange like one thing for another. Or I think that was his claim that like the concept of exchange is pretty alien to most animals. But yeah. I'm sure someone's going to email me and tell me I'm wrong.
1: Probably there's some time that it happened. But, you know, like try to try to think about other things that we could have. So the reason why we have property rights is so they're valuable resources, but also people have conflicting desires about them. So there are things that, you know, if I do what I want with it, that prevents other people from doing what they want with it. And so what are we going to do about this problem? Right, <laughs> That's a problem. We have to decide who gets to have their favorite use of the thing. Okay. And so the property rights solution is each particular item is assigned to a particular individual who is the decision maker for it that's property rights okay you could imagine other arrangements so you could imagine an arrangement where every time somebody wants to use a valuable resource everyone in the society votes on that use okay so that's an alternative to property rights right like nobody's entitled to just decide what gets done to that specific item everyone okay but that's obviously terrible right that's a terrible idea (laughs) and like you know we're going to starve while we're deciding whether food gets to be eaten you know
0: so yeah okay, it's amazingly in. inflexible
1: yeah um you could imagine you know, this there's an alternative um it could be um no just anybody can do anything with any resource at any time you see a resource you can just do whatever you want with it right uh, okay and you know to make it not to make it less obviously terrible like well you don't get to like do anything physically harming other people's bodies right but you see something valuable you could just take it okay um also terrible right because that means that nobody is going to create anything of much value because as soon as they put it down somebody else can take it so like you you wouldn't leave your house because when you came back other people would be living there (laughs) so you wouldn't build a house in the first place because you don't get to have control over it once it's built right and so, so there would be no houses in this society. There'd be no crops. Nobody would nobody would grow them because as soon as they were grown, like you wouldn't be able to count on harvesting them because anyone can come into the field and take it. So then there'd be no crops. So there we would only be foraging and hunting. And we'd probably be doing it secretly by ourselves, not even in groups because you want to make sure that you can get your share. Mm -hmm. So you have to do it when nobody else is looking so that you can be sure that they won't grab the thing. So anyway, it would be a terrible society. So like when you think about just fundamental, just the fundamental solution to the problem of competing uses for a valuable resource, there isn't really a viable alternative that somebody actually wants to do to having property rights.
0: Do you have any recommendations for uh, books or authors or articles that you think complement this debate or your position in this debate particularly well? Uh, I mean, there's this
1: really good book called The Problem of Political Authority.
0: <laughs> oh, who wrote that?
1: It's by my favorite author, right? It's by me, Problem of Political Authority, which you can get on Amazon or okay. you know, wherever fine books are sold.
0: Wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> I will echo that. It's an amazing book. I read it when it came out. What? Nine years ago, now something like that. Well, the yeah. question on everyone's mind is: Are you planning on writing a second edition or an updated edition of that book ever? Um, I don't know. I, I don't I, think it needs an update, but I think for marketing reasons, it would be it, you would get more attention. Oh, that might be. You've yeah. you've that book has developed such a buzz since it came out. I'm sure people would love to see a, a pretty new hardback edition of it. Yeah,
1: libertarians love it. Um, it's unfortunately expensive. Because, um, I don't know, like academic publishers make academic books really expensive. Why is that? That's the tradition. Um, It's a tradition. Yeah. Well, the the book industry is different from all other industries in that the most popular items are the cheapest and the least popular are the most expensive. (laughs) You think, that's weird. But anyway, it's because um, academic books, the publisher assumes that um, no one is going to buy them for fun and that it will only be sold to libraries. Libraries (laughs) or students who are (laughs)
0: required to buy them.
1: Yeah. And so, and yeah, and the library will pay the money. So we can just make it $80 or whatever. (laughs) Um, And, you know, like if they think, sort of like the more popular they think it might be, the lower they will price it, because then they think that it might appeal to a trade audience.
0: I think I know the answer to this, but can you want to talk about your upcoming projects? And I know you also just released another book that you self-published. You want to talk about yes. the two books that you have upcoming? It's Understanding Knowledge. It's the world's best introduction to epistemology. You have that and the other debate volume you mentioned. The other debate is going to be about skepticism. Skepticism, a debate. Anything else besides those two? I want you to have like four or five to rattle off. Uh, I don't know. I'll we'll get to something after that. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: things well, that I'm supposed to be doing.
0: Here's another argument for putting out a second edition of The Problem of Political Authority. Uh, In a couple of years. So Brian Kaplan is working on his book arguing for free market principles. I think he's calling it unbeatable, the brutally honest case for free markets. And my understanding is, is that his criticism of, of your book was that there wasn't enough of it. His criticism of the problem of political authority is he wanted you to talk more about the middle step between arguing against political authority and and arguing for uh, an anarchist society. So my guess is he's effect, in effect writing part 1.5 of The Problem of Political Authority, and they're going to be companion books. If your second edition comes out when his does, what a book tour you two would do.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's a lot easier to make the case for anarchism if somebody already understands why the free market works best for most products and services right if you understand that then you know i can point out that well the the service of protection from criminals isn't that different like when you think about when you if you understand the theoretical reasons why free market provision works better for shoes than you know having a government shoe company exactly the same arguments apply to protection from criminals right but you know if you have somebody who just doesn't doesn't believe in any of that and like you know they think capitalism is horrible right then it's going to be a lot harder you need to like a longer conversation so you know maybe maybe I'll be able to refer people to Kaplan's book I mean, okay um, I'll stop
0: her asking you about that
1: but yeah but I mean the problem of political authority was 150,000 words which was the limit which is pretty long for a book right the publisher want, would like it to be shorter in fact so I don't think that they would want me to add a whole bunch of new text. No, I had probably. to cut out things,
0: you know. And where can people find you if they want to keep up with your ongoing projects?
1: So I have I have a blog on Substack called Fake News, F-A-K-E-N-O-U-S. And, uh, and I have a website at um, owl232.net, 232net
0: I will include links to those as well as to The Problem of Political Authority and the book we discussed today. Um, and any other points of interest that have come up in our conversation. My guest today has been Mike Humer, and his book, once again, co-authored with Daniel Lehman, is called Is Political Authority an Illusion? The answer is yes. Mike, thank you for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Great. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.